Welcome to Lithium Ion Rocks, Season 1, Episode 9. Pilbara Minerals, Who Can It Be Now? Piedmont Lithium, Born to Run. The focus of this episode is Pilbara Minerals and Ken Brinsden interviewed, followed by a hard rock comparable Piedmont Lithium, and we interview CEO Keith Phillips and General Manager Patrick Brindle. As we've discussed before, Rodney visited Piedmont earlier this year and interviewed a lot of the members of the staff and, and, and walked around uh, the ground in the core shack. He wrote an extensive note, which is uh, posted on our website, www.libull.com. I'd encourage you to read it there or visit uh, LinkedIn, uh, Rodney at LinkedIn, or on Twitter at Rodney Hooper 13. The Ken Brinsden interview is actually part two of what will now be a three-part interview. So next podcast, we will have the final uh, segment with Ken. Today's segment will be largely focused on in operational all the operational questions and a question on Ken's thoughts on spodumene prices. I've called Australian hard rock crocodile rock. And I've said that I've not actually given Ken Brinsden a nickname or Pilbara a nickname for that matter ever. I'm thinking maybe we'll call Ken Crocodile Dundee. Ken has called Pilgangora a gigamine. I like that term. But I usually give deposits names of uh, women. For example, Wajna was Jimi Hendrix's foxy lady. Crocodile Dundee's girlfriend's name was Sue or Susie. Pilgangora, Crocodile Rock, is Susie. Ken has assembled the bluest ship partners, Ganfeng, General Lithium, Great Wall, an auto company of China that was huge news. It was the first of its type. Will Volkswagen do the same? Why wouldn't they do the same? I'm still shocked at a lot of the information that was contained within that Volkswagen MOU, a partnership with Ganfeng, a partnership that covers solid state R&D and recycling. So it's a, it's a meaningful prospective partnership. It's an MOU. Um, I'm taking it as a given, but uh, there are some people we've spoken to in Europe who, one of which said that, oh, Volkswagen's just flapping their gums. So, you know, we'll see. But again, they said a lot in there about hard rock. They said a lot about Australia. So when they were talking about Ganfeng, they were talking about Ganfeng's hard rock partners, of which Pilbara is very significant, as is mineral resources at Mount Marion. And to a lesser extent, but new, with uh, Altura. So there's a lot going on there. And uh, Volkswagen will be feeding, or fed, by Pilgangora, perhaps, specifically, over time. Might VW be interested in, you know, 20 to 49% of the Pilgangora mine? A shout out to a cell site analyst. I have a great deal of respect for uh, Stuart McIntyre at Blue Ocean Equities in Australia, who put out a note on Pilbara talking about a potentially accretive deal by mid uh, year this year. And he has a target price of $1.20, and he has a strategic target 
um, of a dollar seventy. He speculates who might want to partner with Pilbara uh, as mineral resources one, Livent two, and West Farmers three. Uh, West Farmers has been in the news bidding for the Rare Earths company, Linus. So uh, they're a group that uh, no one was talking about and is uh, one we should look at. And then uh, he thought maybe some of uh, Pilbara's existing partners, Ganfeng, Pasco, Great Wall. It seems unlikely that uh, Tangshi, SQM, or Albemarle would do it, although he said it's possible. He also suggested maybe some battery majors, CATL, LG Chem, Samsung. That would be groundbreaking. And uh, and then the automakers, as we were talking about earlier, potentially Volkswagen. So the Thrilla in the Pilbara. The partnering process aside, uh, just looking at the financial model, assuming a $600 spajman price over time, and if... Pilbara executes on their stage one and stage two plans. They should be generating some 300 million U.S. in EBITDA in, by 2021, according to this note. That would put them on a three times 2021 EBITDA, although nine times 2020 uh, as they're ramping up. But uh, that's a uh, undemanding multiple if Pilbara is to execute well on their growth plans. Stewart's assumed Pilbara will have 55% operating margins during that period through 2022. A further shout out to Reg Spencer and Larry Hill at Canaccord Genuity, who wrote A note about Pilbara saying, stage three, who can it be now? Now, it looks like the lithium-ion rocks stole that title. We did not. I thought about it before. Just so happens that, like, often, Reg and Larry and the Canaccord team and I are on the same wavelength. Unlike Stuart McIntyre, however, Reg and Larry downgraded Pilbara's stock and have a target price of only 80 cents. This was in connection with their broader note on the entire lithium sector where they attempted to forecast prices and they did so with very significant specificity despite highlighting how difficult it is to and how many different factors go into a particular pricing forecast. But the crux of their argument is that there are a lot of spodumene projects that are producing spodumene, and there's not enough conversion capacity in China. And therefore, there's going to be an oversupply of spodumene, and therefore, that is going to be bad news for Pilbara and other spodumene-only producers. I don't fully agree with those price forecasts. Um... And more importantly, I think there's a quality differential. And I believe that Pilbara, the quality of Pilbara's ore, and also the importance of their collaborative relationships with their partners, meaning their partners need to know that Pilbara needs to make a reasonable margin, will ensure that Pilbara 
gets a good price for their SE6. On the other hand, I very much agree, and uh, Canaccord covers the other company of this podcast, Piedmont Lithium, and if you look at all of the companies in their coverage universe, Canaccord's target price of $0.30 cents for Piedmont is the most upside of any company in their coverage. The, the Volkswagen article you know, of last week has real legs, and the Reuters article talking about the U.S. getting its act together, that, that also has legs. So this um, event, apparently, in a Benchmark Minerals event in D.C. has uh, mushroomed into something you know, very significant with um, very high-profile speakers. I hear Paul Graves at Livent is speaking, someone from Tesla, and uh, perhaps someone from ALB as well. James Calloway of Ioneer, the largest market cap development story in, in America, and a person with some experience of having built a producing lithium mine in Oracobre. China and non-China, us and them, playing out in Washington, D.C., a new House of Cards lithium narrative. For much of the next number of weeks, uh, expect uh, there to be a fair bit of noise and positive noise uh, in relation to that. So it, 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 it's a good timing, actually, to speak about the Piedmont Lithium, which uh, is a story we, we've talked about, written about, um, but it, it, it's, it's kind of like Western Australia you know, in the United States, in my opinion. Piedmont trades on the NASDAQ ticker symbol PLL and also on the ASX with the same ticker PLL. It's about a 75, 80 million U.S. market cap. And Pilbara trades on the OTC ticker symbol PILBF and also on the ASX PLS. Pilbara is in production and has about a U.S. 1 billion market cap. We are privileged here to have Ken Brinsden, the CEO of Pilbara Minerals, who's taken some time out of his exceptionally busy schedule with massive news flow since the beginning of the year uh, to just list it a little bit. Uh, announced in January a 40,000-ton MOU with POSCO and then further progress uh, on that with a, a May kind of decision date on prospectively going forward. On, on that, um, a stage three scoping study came out, as well as finalizing the Ganfeng 50 million Aussie investment, and then an announcement of commercial production commencement, and also the appointment of Macquarie for a partnering process of between 20 and 49% in the Pilgangora mine. In that press release, Ken, you mentioned that you had inquiries from lithium processors, battery manufacturers, trading companies, mining companies, and automakers. Um, I was curious to, to see there's no oil companies in that mix, but uh, as a first question in this partnering process, uh, what would be an ideal uh, you know, partner from Pilbara for Pilbara in your estimation? 
Yeah, well, thanks for the chance to participate, uh, Howard and Rodney. Nice to be with you. Uh, yeah, so our, our objective in in launching or formally launching the partnering process is really to interconnect um, the future offtake that's available from our Stage Three project to to anticipated chemical facility. Uh, where we can continue to build out an, an economic interest in the, the, the downstream chemical conversion. And we'd note that uh, as people look to secure offtake, uh, a question that often gets asked is, well, how do we, how do we um, participate in that offtake and is there the option to uh, co-invest in, in the mine? So the three, in our view, are sort of inextricably linked. There is more vertical integration occurring the quality of the product or products in the supply chain. And one of the ways that both of those objectives can be achieved is with deeper levels of vertical integration. And and that's coincident with one of our strategic objectives. You know, we really like the quality in the, the Pilgangura spodumene. We believe our customers feel the same way and we'd like to leverage that into the, the value-added uh, chemicals, but in particular um, you know, battery-ready lithium hydroxide and and uh, carbonate. So, so that's the that's the background by which we're considering the process. And and to your question, Howard, well, well, what does a partner look like? Well, you know, there's several things in that, and I'm not sure it's easy to provide sort of any one answer. I know that there is people with um, chemical expertise downstream who are looking to secure more raw material supply. Uh, like the idea that we could work with a partner who comes with that chemical expertise and and that they value our resource in the ground. Okay, great. And uh, like I said, you appointed Macquarie, who ran a very effective process, it seems, at uh, Wajina uh, for mineral resources, getting a, a pretty good price. I've commented about that. So we'll see what the landscape looks like, uh, you know, over the next, I think, mid-year, you said you would decide on the outcome? Yeah, that's right. So so we've been working on this process for quite a while to pre the, the um, formal launch. There was a certain amount of work to, to get rid of the process, uh, being able to demonstrate a path through to the mines, mines expansion with, um, you know, the scoping study, uh, some consideration around what chemical facilities could look like and the scale and, and potential location of those facilities. Uh, and then, of course, um, you know, establishing a data room so that people can assess the, the opportunity. So the team's been working really hard on that stuff for, for quite some period of time. And then, uh, coincident with the formal launch, well, that's really, you know, the process that Hillborough Minerals has to go through is to, in effect, cleanse the market. And, and we've been placing shares to, to Gunfang, so... So clearly, uh, uh, the process that we, you know, we're considering is part of that cleansing, as is other you know, other important initiatives that, that are occurring in the company. Things like the POSCO uh, progress of the POSCO relationship, the, the progress of production at a site level, um, you know, commercial production is another important objective and, and outcome now. Um, and and yeah, it's imperative that we get the market cleansed so that we can continue to progress what's now, you know, a closed process. For, for the purpose of partnering, um, we, we can't really say too much more about it now, other than to say that there's a process underway, and, and um, we hope to achieve you know, useful aims for the future growth of the company. And um, a lot of uh, 
listeners and ourselves would be interested to know, and you're closer to uh, this market than most, is um, where is uh, conversion capacity in China relative to uh, this volume in production that's happening in the market? Yeah, it's a good question. And I, and I think people want to sort of immediately migrate to to the, the sort of very broad question about is there sufficient chemical conversion capacity in relation to to the spodumene supply? And broadly speaking, I, I think that that is and, and or there is a lot of chemical conversion capacity that's been commissioned in the last sort of six to nine months and or is commissioning now or will have done this year. So I'm not overly concerned about the balance of spodumene versus chemical conversion capacity. I think a much more interesting question is how much of that chemical conversion capacity makes battery-ready products. And the answer there is, is nowhere near so obvious. It's much more nuanced. And, and I think the answer is that, that um, a reasonable chunk of that new chemical conversion capacity won't make battery-ready products uh, at least not in the short term. And and as such, uh, the, the battery-ready product is still strong demand. And you can see that, you know, we see that as a function of our customers who, who are core suppliers to, to the battery industry uh, in China, you know, especially Danfeng and General Lithium, uh, that are renowned as being stable and, and high-quality suppliers now, not only to the China market, but also to to Japan and Korea. Uh, that tells you something about the, the quality that they produce um, and and the fact that their product is still in demand. So so we remain reasonably comfortable about, you know, where, where the... As long as your product, your spoiled domain product, is placed with the right counterparties, um, you know, you don't have any particular reason to be concerned about the consumption of your spoiled domain. And I, and I guess that's a, that's also a key in the sense that um, you know which spodumene concentrate translates into battery grade. You know, is it a is it a combination of the the, the material and the the offtake bar? It is absolutely. It's and and when you're qualified for the big sophisticated battery players. That's in China or, or, in fact, the Japanese and Korean markets. Um, your qualification is crucial and, and a key piece of, of um, you know, the value that you represent to the market. So typically, you're not going to compromise that, and that's why, the, you know, the consumption of a high-quality spodumene concentrate is going to be, you know, one of the value propositions that you can, uh, you can place in the market for your customer base, the likes of the, 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 the Shanshans and Beijing East Springs and, and, and now, uh, you know, Panasonic's and LG Chem. So, um, so the, you know, harking back to the comments I made at the beginning of the call, the, the nature of the supply chain and the extent to which you're vertically integrated by, you know, whether it's by relationship, by, by off-take or by ownership, is an important part of the value position that you make to the market in the lithium raw material supply chain. And I'd like to think that, that Pilbara Minerals has done a, a really good job in that regard and we have the, the, the premier customer group. Yes, it certainly looks that way. And can just in answering around that 
that sort of theme. You know, I often hear market chatter and people talk about the iron content of spodium and material that comes from the Pilgangura district, etc. But to my mind, you know, you've got uh, a great uh, product, as does uh, your neighbor, Altura. Can you just enlighten us on, on Pilbara's position regarding iron content? Oh, man, this, this whole debate, I felt at different points. It's comical. Um, you know, you get people kind of associate the, you know, the, because we're in the Pilbara, one of the world's great iron ore provinces, you know, there must be heaps of iron in your, uh, you know, in your spodumene concentrate. And look, the reality is nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, the chemical conversion industry is typically going to be looking for uh, product, broadly speaking, sort of sub 2% iron, but... Um, Specifically, in our case, depending on the customer, it's either 1.4% iron or less or 1.8% iron or less. But in any case, what we actually deliver on a ship is still well below typically 1.4%. So, so I, I don't think anyone has any particular need to be concerned uh, with respect to the iron content. In fact, I'd go one step further and say, well, Pilgangora, uh, at, you know, Pilgara Minerals Pilgangora is one of the few locations globally that can deliver ultra-low iron spodumene concentrate for technical-grade markets for the um, high-end glass and ceramics industries. Um, you know, think uh, Gorilla Glass, for example, you know, on your, um, on your high-end iPhone. Uh, that's all typically underwritten by technical-grade spodumene, and there's literally only a few places around the world where you can do it, and Pilgangora is one of them. Uh, um, so we're very much looking to being able to participate in that market uh, over time. And I think that that's really the, the, the proof, if you like, that uh, you don't have any particular cause for concern about iron in our product. It's just a question of uh, you know, which parts of your body and or the, the extent to which you're thinking about chemical grade markets versus technical grade markets. Okay, great. That's, that's good Yeah, And that's certainly... What seems out there, so hopefully that'll be the end of, uh, of that debate. Um, in your latest announcement, you talk about the blending of coarse and fine materials to meet customer specifications. What's the, uh, the split between coarse and fines, and uh, is there a material difference in the grades between the two? Uh, yeah, no, another good question, Rodney. So... We work on the premise that on average we're achieving about 30 to 35% of the product in the coarse category, um, the balance being fine, so you know, 65 to 70%. Uh, and there is really no material difference in the grade delivered in each category um, gen generally. 6% in coarse, 6% lithia in coarse product and 6% lithia in fines. And if I took that question one step further, Rodney, I'd also say um, it's really important that, that the, well, the customer, for the own, the investor, understand where the grade is coming from. And, and again, I think this is one of the value propositions that Pilbara Minerals brings to the table. We are not having any really material issue in delivering 6% in finance product. And, and if ever there's a location where you have a balance between uh, recovered lithium in spodumene um, versus grade, 
it's in the fine circuit. And and yeah, I just want to reassure you and and your listeners when we quote our, our recovered products, um, we're obviously talking about all lithia and the fact that it's at six percent, which we would consider to be the benchmark in in the chemical grade market. Um, you can't disassociate the two because uh, the reality is if you dial down the grade, inevitably you will have a higher recovery. So, so whenever people discuss recoveries, it cannot be discussed in isolation of the grade. The two are um, inextricably linked. You cannot avoid the discussion about grade versus the discussion about recovery. But you know, just want to, as I said, reassure you and your, your uh, listeners that that we, we quote both. We're quoting a benchmark 6% product. It's actually 6% on a ship. It's 6% in fines. It's 6% in course. And here's the associated recovery. Okay, excellent. Because that is my next question. You, you did uh, Your feed rate and production quality seem to be on track. And uh, the issue is currently in recovery rates. So if you can just talk a little bit about that and... and uh, it looks as if you know you've uh, fixed what's needed to be done there. Yeah, that's right, Rodney. So, so um, yeah, we would have said um, end of December, early January that that um, we're well on to achieve our our targeted aims around design recovery. Uh, it does take some time to optimise the plant, so we've made no secret of the fact that that's quite a quite a long process. Um, but we hit some speed humps during the March quarter, and they relate to to um, issues in the plant that are really quite difficult to, to diagnose in the first instance. Uh, that's why I say they're a source of frustration, um, because in effect, you know, we're still learning about some key aspects of, of the plant's operations. Um, so the two areas of concern during the March quarter, uh, where you have an impact in recovered product and ultimately spodumene concentrate was one in the HMF circuit and the effect of ferrosilicate uh, and the other was a, a failing uh, liner distribution box um, that, that impacted the flotation recovery. So so the two issues were difficult to diagnose because you can't physically see them, um, but nonetheless over time, once we were able to, to investigate much, much deeper, um, we found the challenges and, and readily uh, readily resolve them to to in effect get the recoveries back on track. So, so the statements that we've made about recovery basically reflect that, um, and the fact that we have an expectation that we will continue to to work towards the design criteria. We have no reservations about our ability to get there. Um, it's just going to take a bit more time, um, and our confidence comes from the fact that we you know we're testing all of the ore all of the water, you know, all of the reagent mixes that we use in parallel to the physical um, production in the plant and and in parallel in the lab we achieve the, the um, design recoveries. So our expectation is that we'll continue to keep tuning the plant and and ultimately achieve the same physical aim in the big facility as we do, uh, you know, at a lab and a pilot scale. That's great. And as uh, a last question from me, uh, uh, Ken, the million-dollar question is uh, your thoughts on uh, on S6 prices going forward. Yeah, well, the spodumene price has been under pressure 
you know, as a function of the, the sort of steep decline in, in pricing for lithium chemicals in China, uh, principally during the course of last year, I think the, the reality is now that the price has started to stabilise. In fact, there's been a little bit of an uptick uh, during the course of the last couple of weeks. And I think that is probably going to be reflected in more stability in spodumene price, which has obviously been coming down. Uh, now, unfortunately, there is a bit of lag in spodumene markets as compared to the headline chemical price in domestic markets in China, uh, which implies that there will potentially is a little bit more to come out of spodumene pricing in the current period and maybe a little bit more in the June period, or sorry, current period being the March quarter just gone and uh, and now in the June period. But you'd like to think that that... that represents the bulk of the movement in spodumene pricing. I think our customers uh, have a mood of optimism because they're not seeing a a material demand shift. If you're creating battery-ready products, and it's known by the battery industry, uh, your product is in demand, and we can see that with um, another, just another point of evidence, is the increasing export capacity. Uh, to Japan and Korea that's coming out of China. And um, and I think that's also supported price in China because because I'd be surprised if the the Japanese or the Koreans really wanted to see that export capacity fall out of the market. Um, Once they get used to the the quality and stability of that hard rock supply base, in addition to their existing um, brand supply base, I'd, I'd be surprised if they were keen to see that fall out of the market. So... So yeah, I think that's probably supportive to stability in pricing, and um, and yeah, the end, end result should be that it's in in, in some way re- reflects stability in spodumene pricing. As a first question, Keith, Piedmont's about to release an upgraded resource. There's been some excellent drill results from the central property. Is there further opportunity to acquire RAND, drill, and expand the resource to a strategic size, something in the sort of 40 to 50 million tonne range? Uh, Rodney, uh, thanks for that question. I, I would say uh, absolutely. Uh, this is a large belt uh, identified by the U.S. Geological Survey as uh, kind of 30-mile-long belt, about a mile wide, uh, with vast potential. Uh, they had actually identified in a in a report they published in the 1970s, about 750 million tons of potential. So there's there's vast potential on the belt. Uh, the land in this part of the world is privately owned. There are uh, many, many landowners uh, on the belt. So uh, it, you know it's a time-consuming process to build a bigger land package. We're committed to doing that. Uh, we think the project will get bigger and bigger. Having said that, with our current land package and our current uh, drill campaign, we're hopeful uh, that the project will achieve what I would characterize as a strategic size uh, by this this summer. Um, you know, we're not exactly sure where things will end up. We have uh, a lot of drilling still ongoing, assay results still to come. Uh, so we have no new estimate currently on where we will end up. But I, but I, we've always had in mind that if we could have 20,000 tons a year of hydroxide for 20 plus years, that would be very strategic. Our sense in, in conversations with other people in the industry uh, uh, from lithium companies to other mining companies to OEMs is uh, they seem to agree with that number. So 
uh, while, while bigger is certainly better in some respects, uh, this is a highly strategic project, particularly given its location uh, at the size we hope to get to this summer. Patrick, you've had great results uh, recently with your, uh, with your drilling. Uh, can you tell us a bit about how much available land is left under the existing tenements and what sort of availability there is for further land uh, outside of it that looks prospective? Well, uh, Rodney, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, I think that uh, land... Uh, and control of properties within the tin spodumene belt is, is probably one of the most important aspects of the, the Piedmont Lithium Project. Uh, some of your listeners may not realize that uh, our properties uh, are entirely uh, private lands, uh, and so the the land arrangements that we have with with our neighbors uh, and the property owners that that host us are entirely uh, private contracts. We, we don't have any engagement with the state uh, or federal government with respect to the rights to uh, prospect for uh, lithium resources. Now, currently, our, our land package is about uh, just over 1,800 uh, acres. Um, and of that, we've, we've explored within the core property in the range of, of 500 acres. Uh, we've done a very limited amount of exploration at uh, our Sunnyside property. Uh, and of course, as you mentioned, uh, our, our best drill intercept to date uh, was recently announced from our central property uh, that's about a kilometer and a half south of Core. And again, there, you know, we, we probably explored a limited amount uh, of the area which is under our control. And so probably more than half of the 1,800 acres uh, that we have under contract remains uh, unexplored. We have numerous drill targets uh, that are kind of out in the future. Uh, we're currently focused in exploration on our, on our core. Uh, and, of course, we're excited to, uh, to continue drilling on Central. Uh, we've got some good news coming out. Uh, in the in the coming weeks and months on both properties. With respect to the belt overall, I think there are uh, many thousands of prospective acres uh, which which remain uh, unexplored and uncontracted and and really the ability of the Piedmont lithium project to grow over time uh, is only limited uh, by the rate at which we are able to to contract with private landowners for exploration rights. Okay, great. And if you look at grade for a moment, you've got Kings Mountain, the Albemarle's old mine, 1.8 to 2%. Your central property drill results are similar. There have been uh, some, you know, some excellent numbers you've released. So is there any reason why Piedmont shouldn't keep finding high-grade pegmatites you know, outside the core property? Yeah, I guess the answer is uh, we think they probably exist. This is the geology here is got to do the work. I wouldn't say it's particularly hard, but most of the land we obviously don't control. Uh, there could very well be swarms of big, thick pegmatites at ultra-high grade on this belt somewhere. We're looking to get more land to 
have a shot at finding those. We're very happy with what we have now, which we think feels a lot more like what we believe was mined at the Holman Bean property, two miles south of our core property, about a mile, mile and a half south of our central property, which was high grade. It was not as high grade as Kings Mountain in our understanding, but it was a 43-year mine life and very uh, successful operation. So uh, that's what we're focused on now. And, uh, you know, we to, to the extent we find something even bigger and better, uh, that would be a terrific outcome. Okay, great. And uh, in terms of uh, your latest drill results from Central, which were excellent, uh, I see there's a surface outcropping and therefore you know, early cash flows could come from that. Do you think that the mine plant could potentially change away from uh, the coal property to start? You know, that's, that's a very interesting question. Um, you know, I'll preface my response by saying that for the federal permit application that we submitted in December 2018 for the core property, we completed just over 12 months of uh, background studies, uh, studies for the delineation of streams and wetlands, uh, detailed cultural resources survey, uh, threatened and endangered species survey, uh, ground and surface water quality monitoring, and so to make a material change to the plan, uh, let's say to move the mine plan to central uh, to start, uh, the the fantastic results that we announced in March, notwithstanding, you know, would really set us back into a cycle that has 12 months uh, of uh, pre-permit study followed by a, a permit application. So I would expect us to go ahead and complete uh, the permit process on the core property. Uh, but, you know, permitting is, is like a conveyor belt that sort of runs out in front of operations. And so I would expect that, you know, with a successful conclusion to our initial uh, permits that, you know, we would be seeking to permit other areas of the belt shortly thereafter. And then, you know, what the mining sequence looks like over time uh, will be adjusted as the, you know, as the properties under control grow and the resource overall grows. And uh, recently you are expanding further on some metallurgical test work that was done before and the latest iteration is going to include a DMS alternative. Uh, what are you hoping to see from these, uh, from, the, from the test work? Uh, good question. So we are uh, running a, a pre-feasibility level uh, test work program with SGS Canada at their Lakefield, Ontario uh, lab. You know, I'm really looking for two uh, principal objectives through the course of that program. Uh, as you mentioned, firstly, uh, we are doing a series of uh, dense medium separation DMS uh, evaluations, both on variable and composite uh, samples and, and really what we would like to see uh, with those data in hand, uh, as well as a, a technical and economic analysis completed by uh, Primero Group, our, our engineering consultant, uh, we, we hope to understand whether it makes uh, sense for the project to add a dense medium circuit into our flow sheet in the next round of technical study. Uh, the data that we have received to date uh, looks promising, uh, but much more work is required 
before we can reach that conclusion. Secondly, I think uh, we want to have a, a robust process design once we advance into feasibility study and ultimately into design and construction of our concentrator. And so this round of test work includes uh, 10 variability samples across our ore body, uh, early, middle, late years of uh, production, uh, fresh rock samples, as well as uh, oxidized and, and near surface samples. And we'd just like to see uh, first confirmatory uh, results matching the test work that we completed last year, but then expanding beyond that, a look into what uh, the performance of the ore body might be in some, uh, let's say, less than ideal uh, fresh rock conditions. Great. And with all that we're seeing with sanitarians, et cetera, do you think that the U.S. will have an integrated supply chain for EVs by the time that uh, Piedmont gets to build its chemical plant? I do. Uh, you know, our current plan calls for us to uh, initially produce a concentrate, uh, which, which we'll sell uh, probably to Asia uh, for, for a year or two to build up cash and cash flow and really de-bottle de and de-risk that part of the business before we build and finance the chemical plant. Um, but I think the, the supply chain, I believe, will develop very rapidly. Uh, we've already seen uh, SK Innovation, a major Korean company, come to the U.S. They had a groundbreaking last week on a $1.7 billion chemical plant, uh, sorry, battery plant in Georgia, not too far away from where we are. Uh, Daimler is similarly building a large battery plant in, uh, in Alabama, also in the southeastern U.S. I think you'll undoubtedly see uh, other battery plants built in the U.S. in scale, um, and I think you'll see the suppliers to those battery plants moving and building capacity in the U.S. And these are things that can happen fairly quickly, uh, uh, certainly over the, certainly over a, uh, a few-year pro process. So we expect that will happen. We have had some conversations with OEMs who are similarly optimistic about that. Um, car companies like to have their suppliers near and close to their car plants where possible. Um, I think um, I think for sure you, we, we think car companies would like to have the supply chain near them. That means uh, there'll be a large supply chain in Asia as there is now. One will probably develop in Europe as there's talk, but I, I think I think one will certainly grow in the southeastern U.S. Uh, as well. Right, and just as a you know, you've had a distinguished investment banking career. Yet here you are in a uh, microcap stock, so you must be bullish on both Piedmont and Lithium. Yeah, I am. I, I am. And, and I'll say I spent of my 30-year investment banking career, I spent the last decade working with uh, junior and intermediate mining companies, mostly in Canada, bringing them into the U.S. capital market. Uh, so uh, and every now and then you see a company that has the right set of assets, sector, and management, and uh, can achieve really spectacular things from a valuation perspective. So that's what attracted me here. I think uh, I'm very bullish on lithium. It's increasingly clear uh, VW, the biggest car company in the world, put out some um, uh, announcements last week. It's increasingly clear that lithium-ion is the, is the future for EVs and that that is a technology everyone will adopt uh, in scale. I think demand for uh, electric vehicles will be exceedingly strong. I think demand thus for lithium will be very, very strong. I think the likelihood of, of uh, the projects people are talking about all coming online on stream smoothly is very low. 
Uh, so I think there will be great tension and in the in the supply demand equation over the next several years, and I think there will be uh, very strong prices for a sustainable level. So uh, we are uh, so I'm very bullish on lithium, and I'm very bullish on Piedmont, just given our unique location. Uh, we have the only conventional lithium project in the United States. The U.S. is a major economic market. Obviously, it's the number two car market in the world. Most of the cars in the U.S. are made. Uh, in the southeast U.S. where we're located. Uh, so we think we can have a very big, very uh, low-cost, very strategic operation. And and um, I'm uh, looking forward to that all being reflected in the share price uh, increasingly over time. And Keith, there's a lot going on uh, with Piedmont this year. Which would you identify as being the key and major catalyst for investors to look out for in 2019? Yeah, it is a big year for us, um, culminating at the end of the year, we hope, with a construction decision. So uh, along the way, there will be a lot of news flow on a regular basis. Um, the major catalysts, I think the first will probably be an updated mineral resource uh, in June uh, timeframe based on the current drill campaign. Uh, we, we're going to have a cutoff date of April 30th for that campaign. But based on that drilling, we, we are hopeful to have a significantly larger resource announced in June. Uh, at the same time, we're doing a lot of pre-feasibility level metallurgy work up in Canada with SGS Lakefield. That work is ongoing. Uh, we expect to have announcements about the outcomes of that along the way, but a you know, final outcome in terms of uh, our, our proposed uh, flow sheet by you know late June, early July. And then behind those two things, at the in the middle of July or the end of July, we'll have an updated scoping study. So uh, this will look at um, this will be at a PSF engineering level. PFS level network, uh, updated resources. We will not have done the infill drilling uh, to declare reserves. Uh, that'll happen in the second half of the year. So we're, we're calling this an updated scoping study, not a pre-feasibility study, but much of the work will be done at that level. Uh, and then the second half of the year, the two most important things will be, um, number one, the permitting process, which we're actively engaged in now. It's going quite well. We believe we're on track to be permitted this year. So there may be announcements along the way, but certainly toward the end of the year, we hope to uh, be green-lighted on the project. And while that's going on, we'll be doing all the infill drilling and feasibility-level engineering in the second half of the year so that we'll be in a position to um, uh, really have a shovel-ready ready project uh, by the end of the year. So uh, it'll, it'll be an exciting year. There'll be announcements along the way in many areas. And uh, if, if nine months from now or 12 months from now, we have a uh, you know, larger uh, higher NPV beyond even our current level, shovel-ready permitted project in North Carolina, we think that will have a significantly greater value than our current stock price reflects. And, uh, you know, Piedmont is an American-based company with a dual listing. Are you looking to promote your NASDAQ listing more? We are. Uh, again, when I was a banker, I spent a lot of time with international companies bringing them to the U.S., and it was... Uh, yeah, I had a good experience generally with the right company putting in the requisite amount of time on the ground in the U.S. with U.S. investors, which is quite easy for us because we all live here. Uh, it's harder for international-based uh, folks. You tend to find uh, liquidity in the U.S. can grow very significantly and be an important part of the overall equation. So for most precious metals companies in Canada, say, who are listed in the U.S., the majority of their stock trading actually happens in Canada. But there's no cannibalization. Sorry, it happens in the U.S., but there's no cannibalization of what happens in Canada. Uh, so in our case, we, we hope to continue to have robust trading in Australia, 
while building a very deep trading uh, book here in the U.S., more significant uh, and group of investors here in the U.S., probably more significant than Australia. We're currently trading um, about $150,000 a day of total volume between the two markets. A little over half of that is currently in the U.S. Uh, we have a very active marketing calendar for this year with a number of different groups helping us with that. And uh, we're really focused on getting the word out. I think that will be uh, that can make a real difference to the valuation over time. Lithium-ion rocks, lithium-ion bull, and through our respective LinkedIn and Twitter posts, Rodney and I may share with our audience some rationale for a stock for which we have conviction, to own or not to own. If you agree or disagree with and act on or against the rationale of anything said or written in this or any other lithium-ion rocks or lithium-ion bull, that's your free choice. But to be clear, what you are listening to or reading is not investment advice and may not be unbiased. It should not be construed as an investment recommendation to buy or sell any security. Rodney and I are not registered investment advisors nor broker-dealers. Please visit libull.com for further disclaimers.